Turn in your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. We'll be reading the first 11 verses. Matthew chapter 4, and would you stand with me please for the reading of God's Word. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they shall bear him up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let's pray together. Lord, your word is more desirable than gold. I pray that as we open it this morning, that you would help us to see that that we might develop an appetite for the wonder and beauty of your word. And may the desires of the tastes of this world pale in comparison to the taste we have for your word. We ask that your spirit would come And that you would open our eyes to see glorious and wonderful things in your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. We are in the fourth week of an eight-part series on sin and sanctification. And so far we have seen, we have looked at, confessing our sin, how to repent or what it looks like to repent of our sin, and what the process of change is to stop sinning and begin doing what is righteous. 
And every one of these steps so far is impossible to do without God's Word. We cannot rightly confess or repent or change apart from God's Word, the Bible. And in Matthew chapter 4, we have a wonderful example of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself who had the authority He needed to defeat Satan on his own terms. But did you notice every time he answered Satan, what came out of his mouth? It is written. And I would propose to you this morning that if our Lord, the creator of this universe, took the time to say, it is written, then what it is that he's quoting is surely good enough for us. God's word is essential in our fight against sin. And all I want to do this morning is really two things. The first is I want to show you in each of these steps how God's word is essential to doing them. We can't do them apart from God's word, the Bible. And the second thing that I want to do is I want to encourage and exhort us to know God's Word, to really know it. That's it. That's what we're going to do this morning. In John chapter 17, verse 17, in Christ's high priestly prayer, He says this, you're probably familiar with it, Father, sanctify them, the disciples, In your truth, thy word is truth. What a profound statement. Sanctify them in the truth. What will set us apart? What will make us holy as God's people? The truth. But what did he mean by that? Mathematics? Science? No. He meant thy word. The Bible. God's word is truth, and it is God's word that will sanctify us. In week one, Pastor Jeremy took us to Joshua chapter 7 and showed us what it means to confess. And we looked at the sin of Achan and the confession of Achan. And we saw in Achan a wonderful example of what it means to confess our sins. In 1 John, we're told that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all impurity. So what does it mean to confess? And Jeremy gave us three specific applications. When we're confessing, number one, he said, use clear biblical language. Use clear biblical language. What is it that we're supposed to confess? What do we confess? Isn't it sin? We're not called to confess our goodness. We're called to confess our sin. Well, have you ever stopped to ask, how do you know it's sin? If you walk into a public high school or junior high or elementary school today, I would wager, if you just listened to what the administration said, 
I would wager the number one sin is probably smoking. The number two sin is unsafe sex. Disrespect to parents, that's not a sin. Disrespect to teachers, that's not a sin. But what do we learn about what they think is sinful? By what they speak against. Isn't that true? And, and that's, that's fair, I think. You do not smoke cigarettes. That's what I learned in high school. Anyone who did was repulsive, disgusting. It's going to kill you. This is awful. But you know what? Smoking cigarettes is not in and of itself a sin. You know how I know that? Because the Bible doesn't say anything about cigarettes. Now, there may be attendant sins, enslavement. There may be sins that go along with it. Drunkenness often does. But in and of itself, if somebody put a cigarette in your mouth and made you smoke it, you wouldn't have to confess any sin. So how do we know what is sin and what isn't? Only by God's Word, the Bible. So when we're confessing, what we have to confess is what the Bible calls sin. Now, if the Bible says that anger and wrath and malice and slander is sin, then if we are angry and wrathful and malicious and slanderous, what are we? We're sinful. And, we put, and when we participate in that slander and we're going to confess our sin, we don't say, yeah, I'm sorry, I, I, I kind of exaggerated things a little bit. That's not what the Bible calls sin. Jesus used exaggeration, didn't he? Or something like it when he said, not even a camel can pass through the eye of a needle, or if it could, then a rich man can enter heaven. Exaggeration's not a sin. What is a sin? Lying or deception is, and slander is, but not exaggeration. So when the Bible calls something sin, we need to confess it as sin, and Jeremy reminded us we do well to use biblical language to identify the sin. If someone comes to you and says, please forgive me for exaggerating, aren't you left feeling like, don't know what to say. Um, okay, I forgive you for exaggerating. Uh, that's not a sin. That's not a sin. But if somebody comes to you and says, will you please forgive me for being wrathful towards you and slandering you? Isn't your heart ready to say, yes, I forgive you. I know you know it was sin. I know you hate it like I do and I am happy to forgive you just like my father forgave me. Have you maybe <clears throat> been uh, a little bit upset with your children because they're not obeying you? And you're, you feel your anger rising? And your, your child comes to you and says, Mom, I'm sorry I made you so mad. Is that a confession? 
Is making mom mad a sin? What do you think? Only if mom's anger is righteous. But if mom's being impatient, or mom really wanted to watch that TV show and you're getting in her way and that's why she's mad, have you sinned by making her mad? No. If you were to confess, mom, I'm sorry that I rebelled against you and disobeyed what you told me to do. I know God says to honor you and to obey you, and I rebelled. Isn't that very different? Well, how do we know what to do when it comes to confession? It is by God's Word that as we read it, God's Word shows us what actions we're taking, what attitudes we have are sinful. And when He convicts us of those, then we get to confess them. And when we confess, we use clear biblical language so that everyone we're confessing to understands, yes, they know it's sin, they know it's wrong, and I'm happy to forgive them. Second, Pastor Jeremy told us to identify the internal and external sins. Not only do we identify the outward sin, I'm sorry I yelled at you, but we also identify the, ex, uh, the internal sin. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Another verse you're probably familiar with. For the Word of God is living and active. We know that, right? Sharper than any two-edged sword. We know that. Piercing to the division of soul and spirit. We've heard that. Of joints and of marrow. We got that. And discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That is what is so remarkable about God's Word is that it not only tells us that an external behavior is sinful, but it shows us what's going on in our hearts. It shows us what's going on in our hearts. And so Jeremy suggested that as we confess our sin, we don't only identify what we did wrong externally, but we also look to the heart. And one example of that is in James chapter 4. I'll read it for you. James says, You desire and do not have... So you murder. Now, as far as I know, nobody in the church that James is writing to was actually put to death physically. But James goes on to say, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. What he's saying is the heart of a fighter, the heart of a quarreler, is a heart of murder. And if we're going to confess our sin rightly, We not only identify the external behavior, but we also identify what was going on in our hearts. I was angry with you, and Christ says, I was like a murderer. In that moment of time, it was like I wanted you to die. That's how wicked I am. Will you forgive me for that? Perhaps you might ask for forgiveness for being impatient. 
I, I was, I was uh, short with you. Please forgive me for being impatient. Maybe even better would be I was proud and I acted as though I was far more important than you. And when you asked me to do something and I was impatient with you, what was going on in my heart is you should be waiting on me, not the other way around. So we identify the internal and external sin. And then the third point that Jeremy had regarding confession was to eliminate excuses. Eliminate excuses. And if, if you think for a second, we come up with excuses all the time, don't we? Isn't, I know when the first thing that comes out of my mouth usually when I'm thinking about what I'm going to confess is a justification. I, I'm sorry that I did that. I was tired. <laughs> I'm sorry that I did that. I've had a long day. I'm sorry I yelled at you. It was just that my boss did what? Why are we talking about that? They're excuses. We're trying to justify ourselves. Do you remember what Adam said to God? The woman that you gave me, she gave me and I took and ate from it. And then when he talked to the woman, the woman said, the serpent, he tricked me. Excuses. Let's eliminate our excuses. Instead of saying, I was tired Maybe we should keep in mind 1 Corinthians 10 that says we will not be tempted beyond what we're able to bear, which means we may very well have been tired. We may have had a horrible day, but was that more than we could bear? Not if God's word is true. So as we read the Bible, we understand we are without excuse. We have no excuses, and therefore, as we confess, we can eliminate those excuses. Not only, though, is the Bible essential in confession, it's also essential in repentance. It's essential in repentance. And we looked at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and Paul said there's two types of grief or two types of sorrow. One is worldly and one is godly. And the grief that is worldly leads to death. And the grief that is godly leads to salvation. And if you were to zero in on one sin, if you want to evaluate your repentance of that sin or from that sin, a simple question is, have you been saved from it? And I don't mean as in justification, are you going to heaven? But I mean, has the Lord delivered you from that? And if the Lord has not delivered you from it, if instead you've just reaped more death, more sin, then perhaps repentance hasn't yet happened. Second, we saw that we ought to evaluate the fruit of repentance. That repentance is visible externally by the fruit that it bears. Just, well, Paul gave seven examples, but just let me give you two. He said, what zeal this godly grief has produced in you. Repentance looks zealous. And when Zacchaeus was saved... You remember that little Zacchaeus climbs up into the tree and Christ says, Zacchaeus, come down because I'm going to your house today. And you know what Zacchaeus said? After everyone started grumbling because he was such a terrible man, Zacchaeus said, half of everything I own goes to the poor. And if I've wronged anyone, 
And that's probably not a hypothetical. He knows he wronged people. If I have wronged or defrauded anyone, I will repay them fourfold. Fourfold. Do you think he was eager to repent? He was. He was zealous. And then look at Judges chapter 10 with me. I just want to give you this example of the Israelites. One of the other things Paul said in 2 Corinthians 7 is that we, or the Corinthians, he said, what punishment? And what we said there was, what he means is an acceptance of punishment. What willingness to do the right thing? What willingness to accept the consequences for your sin? I was reading this the other day and it struck me what a good example it was. God is condemning the Israelites saying, you have left me and you've served other gods. Look at verse 13. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. This is halfway through the book of Judges, and you know they've already been saved multiple times, and every time they go back to serving other gods. And God says, therefore, I'm done. I'm not going to save you anymore. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. That's pretty intense. Well, what would a repentant heart look like or sound like in the presence of such a judgment? And the people of Israel, verse 15 said to the Lord, we have sinned, do to us whatever seems good to you. What a remarkable statement. Do to us whatever seems good to you. We know we deserve it. Do to us whatever seems best. Only please, we ask, deliver us. Verse 16, so they put away the foreign gods. They didn't wait. They put them away and from among them, and served the Lord, and then he became impatient over their misery, which is another way of saying he got tired of watching them suffer, and so he delivers them again. The Bible is essential if we are going to repent, to evaluate our own grief and to see whether or not it's consistent with God's word, and to evaluate the fruit that we see being born from that repentance. And one other thing to note is that the Bible causes us to grieve. Have you ever been reading your Bible and come across a passage? It happens often for me in the book of Proverbs where it says, this is evil, this is righteous, and I say, whoa, I'm over here. I'm, I'm like that. And all of a sudden, you feel convicted, you feel guilty for what you know you've done, God's word causes us to grieve. And if we're accepting of it, it will be godly grief and it will produce salvation. And then last week, we looked at the Bible in the process of change. The Bible in the process of change. And there were three main steps to changing. The first is to figure out what you have to put off or take off. We looked at Ephesians chapter 4, and this, is, this corresponds to what we're confessing. What is it that you're confessing? You're confessing a sin, right? And if you're confessing a sin, what do you need to do with that sin? You need to put it to death. 
You need to take it off. You need to kill it. Well, how are we going to know what it is we need to put off? Answer, God's word. Second, be renewed. Be renewed. We put off, be renewed, which is passive. Pastor Jeremy suggested this would correspond to things like reading your Bible, praying, being in fellowship, what we call the normal godly disciplines. But this is a passive verb, which is interesting because how do you be renewed? If, you're, if it says be renewed, it's something that happens to you, so then what can I do about it? Anything? I like to compare it to the blind man that Jesus walks by. Now, could the blind man heal himself? No, he couldn't. Well, what could the blind man do? He could cry out, Lord Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And as we cry out to him, who will renew us? God will. So put off, be renewed, and then figure out what to put on. Figure out what to put on. Not only do we have sins that we need to put off, but the sin that we had in our lives was replacing a godliness that we ought to have in our lives. It's not enough, farmers out there, it's not enough to pull the weeds out of your plot. Because if you pull every single weed or spray every single weed in your lot and leave it like that, what's going to happen? What's the only way to keep weeds out of a cornfield? What do you need in it? Corn. If you don't have corn in it, it's just waiting to be destroyed. So we pull the weeds out, but we have to put the righteous fruit in it. Otherwise, we're just waiting. It's just a matter of time until we're back to weeds. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, just a quick and great example of this. Not only do we put off, but we have to put on. If, if we don't, we're, we're like an empty field, just waiting for the next weed. Verse 3, Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Stop being so conceited. Stop being so selfishly ambitious, but Paul doesn't leave it there. I'm so happy he doesn't stop there. He says, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Think of other people as more significant than yourselves. Do you want to know the best path to humility? It's not, woe is me, I'm a terrible person, I'm such a sinner, that may be involved, that will be involved, but that's not it. Paul says in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. If you're struggling with conceit, the best remedy for that is to start thinking about others as more important than you. And that means that when somebody else has a need, it may be that's more important than your own. And true humility will come when we no longer think of ourselves as the most important person we know. So we have to put off, be renewed, and put on. 
So the Bible is essential in every step of that. If we're going to confess, we have to know what the Bible says to be able to confess our sin. If we're going to repent, we need the Bible to drive us into grief and to pull us out of the grief. And if we're going to change, we need to not only know what to take off, we need to know what to put on, and we need to be renewed. And the Bible is indispensable in that. Now, with the remainder of our time, I want to encourage us to become people of the book. I want to encourage us to take more seriously this divine treasure that we have. The point that I have in your outline is the Bible is useless until it is understood. This is not a magic book of formulas. It does not matter if you've read the whole thing. If you don't understand it, what good will it do? If you don't know what it means to pilfer, and the Bible says pilfering is sin, are you going to stop stealing? No, because you don't get it. You don't know what it means. The Bible is useless until it's understood. First, we read the Bible so that we know what it says. We read the Bible so that we know what it says. You're familiar with 2 Timothy. We just finished a study on that, what, six months, eight months ago? No, probably a year ago. Um, but just because you, I'm sorry, we, all of Scripture, every part of Scripture is God-breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed and profitable for How much of Scripture is inspired? All of it. Does that include Leviticus? Does that include Numbers? Does that include Song of Solomon? Yeah, all of it's inspired and useful for training. But how many of us have actually read it? How many of us are actually familiar with its contents? I think that if I were to ask you, tell me, tell me what Nahum's about, about, or tell me what Nehemiah talks about, if you're not in Dave's study, you might not have any idea what it is. And I would love to see us become characterized as a people of God's Word, so that it's secondhand that we're quoting it, referring to it, using it, applying it to one another. What a sweet thing that would be to see. There's, a, there's an audio Bible I have. It's, it's Max McLean reading the ESV. You know what shocked me? The whole thing is about 70 hours long. And he doesn't read fast. It's a nice, steady pace. That means that we could read our entire Bible in about 70 hours. Now, probably not in a row, You'd pass out. Most of us would anyway. But if you wanted to read the Bible this year, how many hours would you have to put in? Less than two work weeks. Does that shock you? There's no reason that we shouldn't be reading God's Word. All of it. All the time. It's doable. It's manageable. It's hard, but it's doable. 
I saw one statistic that said the average American, and I don't know how this could be true, but the average American over age two watches 34 hours of TV a week. I don't know how that's possible. Let's say it's 20. How long, if you got rid of all your TV watching and replaced it with Bible reading, how long would it take us to read through the entire Bible? Less than four weeks. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> Let's do it. Let's do it. Why not? Let's read the Bible. If you read about 12 chapters a day, do you know how many times you're going to get through the Bible in a year? Four times in a year. There's no reason that we shouldn't be going through it all the time, all of it. It's doable. I hear in Iowa, 70 hours is about what it takes to mow your lawn in a month. <laughs> it took me two solid hours to mow the front part of my lawn yesterday. So 70 hours, that's nothing. That's nothing. And if you struggle reading, if you're not a fast reader and you say it's 70, no way, 270 for me. Put on an audio Bible and follow along as you're listening. Do it. Do it. And if that even is too much, listen to it. If you sat and listened for an hour a day in about two and a half months, you would have listened to the entire Bible. That's wonderful. I love it. Also, I want to say read repeatedly. Once isn't enough. Keep on going over and over and over again. When you study a book, I know it's Pastor Jeremy's habit, and I know uh, our, our pastor in California also, read the whole book over and over and over. You know when you start to understand it? It's not until about 10 times of reading it that you have any idea what it's talking about, unless you pay careful attention. But don't just read it once and move on. Have you ever had one of your children come to you and accuse another of your children of something, trying to get them in trouble? Probably not. Maybe, maybe not. Um, I know as a principal that would happen often with students is somebody would come up and, and try to tattle on so-and-so and try to get them in trouble. And sometimes it would be a false accusation. And so I'd investigate it. I'd look into it. And you know what I'd do if it was a false accusation? Without a second thought, if they came and I knew that it was a false accusation, I would give them the punishment they were trying to put on the other person. So you were trying to get them to have a detention because they did such and such, and that's a lie? Okay, you get a detention. Now, I'll hear any accusations you want, but if it's going to be false, there's a penalty that comes with a false accusation. Does that sound fair to anyone? Does it seem reasonable? You want your brother to get three spankings, and you lie about it to get him three spankings? You're getting three spankings because that's what you wanted to do to him. Now, I... To me, that's just intuitively righteous. But I learned it in Deuteronomy. I learned it in Deuteronomy. And I didn't get that the first time or the second time or the third time that I read it. But eventually, the Lord knocked on my head and said, look, this means something and it's useful. 
So we don't just read it once and say, yep, check, bucket list, you know, I read through the whole Bible, I'm done. We keep going, keep going, keep going. There's riches in it. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 6. May this be the pattern of our lives. What a wonderful call. Deuteronomy chapter 6, and we're going to jump in at verse 6. You know the context around it. The Shema. Verse 6. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. That's what should characterize us. That when we're walking down the road, it's about the Bible. When we're sitting down at home, it's about the Bible. Talk to me about God's word. These commands are beautiful. And our lives have to be all about the book. Look at Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Pretty much right in the middle of your Bible. And look at verse 9. We're talking about sanctification, dealing with our sin. And this is what the psalmist says. How can a young man keep his way pure? How can I avoid sin? By guarding it according to human wisdom. No, by guarding it according to your word. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. When, when Christ was being tempted in the desert by Satan, what was the first thing out of his mouth? It is written. He understood it. He had stored it up in his heart so that he could guard himself against sin. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Is that true of us? I think if we're honest, it's sometimes true at moments. But let it be characteristic of us in our lives. That we could say with sincerity... In the way of your testimonies, in the way of your word, I delight as much as in all riches. If you could have all the riches of this world, would you give up the Bible? No way. This is more priceless than anything. So we read the Bible to know what it says. If we don't know what it says, how can we do anything with it? And then second, we study the Bible so that we understand what it means. And all I mean here is that reading it's not ultimately enough because we read things and we say, huh? 
What does that mean? And until we figure out what that means, what can we do with it? Usually nothing. Unless it's some simple command, but we don't know why it's there. So just because we've read it doesn't mean we understand it. Nehemiah 8.8, when they read God's word, what did they also do with it? They gave the sense of it so that the people could understand. And that's our goal, is not just to read it. Yeah, I've got a bunch of Bible verses memorized. I memorized this one verse. It says, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, compassionate, forgiving. So what does compassionate mean? As you're abusing your sibling. What does it mean to be tenderhearted as you're making fun of them? If you don't know what it means, it will not do any good. We have to understand what it means. And second, I just want to encourage you not to be scared of the difficulties. There's a lot of difficult passages in the Bible. Peter even refers to Paul's writings as hard to understand, some of them. Not all of them, but some of them are hard to understand. But God is faithful. He is not obscuring His Word. The reason it's hard for us to understand His Word is because of our own sinfulness, not because He's playing games with us. But do we serve a merciful God? Do we serve a God who wants to keep back good gifts from His children? Do we not have a Father who loves His children and will give all good gifts to them? then if we read his word and ask for his help, it will be understandable. It will be. Keep reading. Keep reading. It begins to make sense more and more the more you read it. And last, in our study, our study isn't finished until our understanding is perfect. And by that, I simply mean we can't stop and say, yeah, I got that figured out. Yeah, I studied that a couple years ago. I don't need to look at it anymore. No, no matter what, our understanding will never be perfect, and therefore, we need to keep going, keep going. And lastly, we meditate on the Bible so that we're ready to use it. You know Joshua 1.8, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night, for then you will be careful to obey it, and then you will do all that is written in it. That's our call, is not just to read it and put it on the shelf. But when we close our Bible, we keep it open in our minds. So we're constantly thinking about it, meditating on it, so that we can obey it. And let's end with 2 Corinthians 10.5, and I think you'll get the connection to sanctification. 2 Corinthians 10.5. Whole section's great, but I'm going to limit myself to verse 5. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Why do we read the Word? It's not just because it's a good thing to do. We read God's Word so that it's in our mind, so that when an evil thought comes into our mind, we take it captive to Christ. 
And we say, no, I'm not going to think that. No, I'm not going to dwell on that because God's word says. And then we will be with Christ in the wilderness and we'll say like him, as it is written, depart from me, Satan. That is how the Lord will keep us. He will purify us as we know his word, as we meditate on it and take every thought we have captive to Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you that you have not left us alone, that you have given to us a word, instruction, a testimony, a law, a commandment, a statute. Your word is precious. It is more desirable than gold, even much fine gold. And it is sweeter than honey, even the drippings of the honeycomb. Lord, I pray that you would transform the palate of our soul so that your word would be sweet to us. And may we taste the pleasures of this world and gag because they now appear disgusting. I ask, Lord, that you would transform us into a people of your book, that we would be reading and talking about and quoting and thinking about, meditating on, challenging your word with one another, that that's what would characterize us. But not just a book, not just a law, but God's word for God's glory, for our purity, and for the love of his purity. May that be our motive, a sincere love from a purified heart, that you might receive the glory and we might be guided in this world. In Christ's name I pray, amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord causes face to shine upon you. You are dismissed. <laughs>